So as you know, on Unscalable, we like to speak to people who have adopted an unscalable approach to growing their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to have Jeremy Moser on the show. Jeremy is an entrepreneur and CEO of USERP, a 35-plus person SEO firm serving high-growth technology companies like Monday.com, Robinhood, and more. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Excited. Uh, so for listeners who don't know you, uh, could you share a bit of background about what led you to sort of starting USERP, what you were doing before, um, and kind of what your goals are for the company now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Jeremy Moser. I'm CEO at USERP. We're a digital PR and SEO firm that services mostly B2B SaaS companies that are venture-backed. Um, so before this, so I started USERP around, it's been probably around three and a half years since we launched um, and before that was working in a content marketing firm. Um, so doing sort of similar stuff as a whole, um, mainly for clients that were sort of around tech, some local business in there. So kind of a diversified mix of clients. And we were doing anything from like just content marketing from a base level standpoint to more localized marketing services. So it was kind of across the board of the spectrum there. Uh, prior to that, I had done a, a good deal of work um, for more brand marketing perspective. So I worked for Havoc Games, which is like kind of a game, essentially like a software development studio uh, that's used by a lot of large game companies. So they create sort of engines essentially for like large game productions like Call of Duty, Halo, things like that. It's kind of a cool company as a whole. Um, so just been floating around in different marketing spaces and then really found a calling more so in the content marketing SEO world. And that's really what led us to start USERP. Now we're... Uh, you know, three and a half years in, I think we're around 40, 41 people at this point, including myself. Um, so things have been picking up pretty nicely and excited to see where we go from here. Amazing. Um, yes, yeah, so I saw on your website, you have loads of great case studies, um, you know, from the likes of monday.com, which is amazing. Uh, how did you go about getting your sort of early case studies uh, as you were starting out? Yeah, absolutely. One of the trickiest things when you're really starting a marketing agency is, especially if you don't have a lot of connections, is is getting those sort of big name clients because it's sort of that chicken and egg problem, right? Of like you need case studies and social proof to land them in the first place, um, but you obviously can't land them if you don't have any. Um, so you're kind of stuck in that rock in a hard place. And, and usually if you don't have connections built up, that's where you find the biggest issue. And so that was what we were experiencing early on. Um, so we really just started to reach out and say, you know, we've, we know how to do a lot of this stuff. I've done it before for these types of clients at this specific agency, or I did it before for this specific brand and really leveraging some of that past experience without necessarily legitimate case study and just saying, Hey, if we do this work for you, we can do it at a discount. If you're able to give us a good review, a good case study, let's work together here to, to make this beneficial for both parties. And so that was kind of a little bit of an unscalable approach that we used in the early days to really land some good name clients. And that just, you know, brings in more clients over time too, once you can land those logos essentially and, and you know, mm -hmm. showcase that you actually have done a lot of these things for good brands. So I think if you're struggling starting out early on and you've kind of maybe tapped your own network, you've sent all those emails, people you know, friends, et cetera, and you can't seem to land any of those, I would start pitching to, you know, anyone that's semi-related. Maybe you have a second, third connection there. Offer your services at a little bit of a discount um, and, and really get that benefit there from a case study. Because meanwhile, you know, while that's going to be a short term loss, so to speak, on your actual revenue or profit, whatever it is, you're actually going to net just benefit long term, obviously, because you can land a lot more deals going forward. Mm. So would you recommend like kind of now with the recession looming? Well, I guess you are in a recession now, I guess. Um, would you say that sort of agencies that are just starting out now should maybe discount majorly just to acquire customers now and, and kind of get those stories? 
or would you say it's probably still good to have a, a good sort of baseline sort of rate for your clients? Yeah, it's a good question. I think if you're really starting out from scratch, there's probably going to be even more of a need to do that and discount your services to get those initial case studies. Companies are a little obviously more weary of spending large amounts, especially if they have not engaged with you previously. So if this is a new project that a company is going to be forced to take on and you're kind of pitching them cold, I think you're going to need a stronger value proposition there, especially as a newer agency. If you don't have that history of work behind you, it's going to be difficult to land those clients. I think if you're in a position like us and and we've built up over time, we see a lot of companies actually double down on on work in times like this where maybe they've, you know, decreased other projects or they've, you know, unfortunately cut certain staff and that really increases the, their need for actual third-party services, agencies, consulting firms to fulfill a lot of that work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if you're in that position, now is actually a really good time to accelerate your growth. Yeah. Um, there was a tweet uh, I saw on your uh, Twitter account, um, and it, it pretty much exploded a couple of weeks ago, uh, where I think, I think you said you increased Monday.com's traffic by 1,570% via SEO, and you had four hours of video showing the, the, that strategy and how you did it. Could you sort of break down a strategy for listeners just maybe to three key takeaways? Like how the hell did you do that? Because that's incredible. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we worked with Monday.com from uh, like around March of 2020 to I think April of 2022. So this year. Um, so around two years as a whole. Um, and thankfully, we really got to be sort of their SEO lead from that entire period. So we were the only ones engaged in work with them at that time, which was a really unique standpoint. Um, from typical cases where you're working, you know, maybe with another agency or they have other agencies servicing different sectors of SEO. So we really got the, you know, to work with them from start to finish there from technical to content creation to the link building side of things. So we really got our hands in every part of the strategy there. Um, From a high level perspective, it really, you know, they had a great brand presence initially of a lot of good branded content, a lot of branded search, but they weren't necessarily capturing new demand out there. They were really just, you know, increasing the amount of branded searches they were getting versus creating new content around different keywords in different spaces. So Monday has a really unique value proposition and a really unique customer base where they service everyone from, you know, things like another B2B SaaS company all the way to smaller like project management firms, construction, all these sort of different outlier niches. So they have a really cool opportunity to capture and create content in all these different niches and spaces. So our content creation there was a really significant volume. I think we ended up doing in the first year is maybe somewhere around 100 articles per month total. And these are, you know, legitimate long form articles, well written subject matter experts in the space, project management certified writers, things like this, where the, the content itself is really good. So when we're talking about that scale, it's not like super short form. It's not really crappy, like AI generated stuff. It's all done by real writers, real US based folks. Um, so a really large production volume there of content. And then on the link side of things, you know, our goal there is just how do we position them in the market? How do we land really good third-party links on things around project management spaces? Like what are articles that folks are already reading out there, comparing the best tools? How do we position them in front of those readers and capture a lot of that traffic mm-hmm. so that we're not just getting traffic for the sake of traffic, but our strategy here is meant to drive really good sales qualified leads, signups, trials, enterprise deals, things like that. Um, yeah, so obviously Monday.com has a really good domain authority already. Um, obviously, I've started a new company now, Story Prompt, uh, where our, our domain authority is below 30. <laughs> and I've been trying to get sort of backlinks and people are ignoring my emails and I've tried all the different <laughs> tactics. I've got a few by using kind of kind of giving away affiliate links, that kind of thing. 
But uh, what is your advice to sort of early stage startups with a low DA trying to sort of get the backlinks going? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a tricky position because it's, again, that situation of if you're reaching out via cold emails, you probably get them too all the time for your own site. Anyone listening to this probably has that experience of getting cold emails or maybe it's you know Twitter DMs, LinkedIn DMs saying, hey, can I get a link on this? And really everyone's doing that because obviously there's there's really strong value in getting those links. But what we see as you know the best step forward is really tapping your network of relationships if you have any of are there any other SaaS founders that you've connected with, folks that maybe own a SaaS company if you're in that space as a whole, any business owners, media owners, journalists that you're connected with on social media. Can you reach out there and just start a conversation around a content collaboration of some sorts? Maybe you can do the research on their site and sort of skip those cold emails and go direct to source. Mm -hmm. Uh, We tend to find that's really the best route when you're starting early on is have a little bit of a longer term mindset of building relationships as a whole, building that network to where when you do go to pitch things, you're not sort of in that spam section of their inbox. You know, you go to the top there, they recognize your name, they understand the value that you can provide to them. So I think that's a really good way to start. And, and initially, if you're doing more complicated pitches or you're trying to land things like a guest post or content contributions, I think doing some sort of valuable research there is always key. Um, so even going, you know, taking it a real step further and saying, I'm going to go to this site, maybe it's HubSpot.com, for example. I want to write a cool piece for them. I want to publish on their site. I'm going to take the time and use, you know, a third-party tool, SEMrush, Ahrefs, whatever it is, do the research and say, okay, here's your biggest competitor active campaign, whoever it is, this is the topic they've published on recently that you don't currently cover. How about I write that article for you? It's going to be 2000 words. It's going to be really well done, well written. And those pitches are just going to have a much higher success rate versus sort of asking something from them. You're really displaying value there in a piece that, you know, that might normally cost them upwards of a thousand, if not more dollars to create that single piece, right? And you're offering that value there for free. Um, so I think approaching it from an angle of how can I help this site? How can I build a good, you know, long-term relationship with them really does pay off in the long run because you're getting obviously that initial link, that initial brand awareness, but down the line, you have that relationship to kind of tap into. Mm. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think building relationships is, is key. I've noticed that now actually since like starting a new company, it's all about relationship building and then having the ask like way down the line. Um, uh, yeah, I guess that's sendable. We had, we had those requests coming to us all the time. You know, we had a high DA, people asking for links. We tended to ignore them ourselves. So I know how it is on the other side. And now being, being a startup now is, is very interesting. It's so much harder to get a company off the ground. You know, back in the early days, I would write to Mashable, TechCrunch, all these publications would just write about uh, sendable back then. But now you have to kind of, kind of get to know the writers, get them on your side and then get them to write about you. Um, yeah, I guess if you if you were to let's say land land a backlink and you have some great content, generally how long do you start to see the results on Google? Yeah, so it'll really depend on where you're starting at, you know, prior to landing some of those links coming in. So if you're a brand new domain in a competitive space, you're probably not going to see much of of any real tangible results from you know one, two, three backlinks. But if you're starting to add up five, ten, fifteen a month that are coming from good sources to specific pages on your site. You're going to start to see, obviously, metrics like your domain rating, domain authority start to climb. That's sort of a leading indicator of how well you can rank for given search terms. Um, So the more competitive, the more links you're just going to need as a whole, the more kind of brand efforts. If you're a pretty established brand, though, and you're in maybe not as much of a competitive space, or maybe it's a competitive space, but that specific sort of search term that you're going after, 
is maybe a little less competitive as a whole. You can see results from even, you know, just five to 10 links to a single Mm -hmm. page. You can see that results really quickly there. We saw a lot of that in the case for monday.com where they have a lot of existing authority. They have really good content. They're covering all these sort of maybe outlier spaces as a whole, like uh, project management for a construction firm. Obviously, that's going to be a little less competitive than like project management as a blanket term or project management Mm -hmm. for SaaS. And so when you're getting just a few links to those key pages, you can see some pretty massive results. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to go just like more broad into marketing in general. Um, so I guess just with what's happening on Twitter now, it's kind of showing the need to own your own audience um, and not rent one because who knows if Twitter, if Twitter might go bankrupt at some point. Um, I know you have almost 100,000 followers on Twitter. Um, and if they did go under, you kind of lose that, that audience, right? So do you believe that you should spread the risk and diversify your marketing efforts? Or do you believe you should focus kind of on a, on a particular channel? Yeah, so my answer there is typically both, and it really just comes down to timing. Um, so I think one of the biggest mistakes people see is, uh, you know, advice like diversify your marketing efforts. And I think initially it's really the worst way to do good marketing. So a lot of people will see like massive billion dollar publicly traded brands that are doing, you know, full scale marketing. They're on every channel, 10 posts a day from TikTok to Facebook to Instagram, Twitter, their newsletter, YouTube, all these sort of platforms they really start to add up, right? And the problem here is that you're really skipping a lot of rungs on the ladder. So the best way to describe this is really like essentially an exercise analogy of like to become the fastest sprinter in the world, you don't just like one day walk up to the track and just like sprint your hardest and you just keep doing that. You do all these things like you stretch, you work on your breathing, you do all these different techniques to build up to that. And I think that's really key in terms of you know, diversifying your audience and your marketing is that you want to start small with maybe one, two key channels that you think are a good investment based on where is your audience currently, what's the potential results and volume you can get there. And once you have a lot of that built out and proven out, you can either double down on that or you can start to spread to different areas because you've then built up a backlog of a lot of this content. Repurposing becomes easier. It becomes less of a time suck in terms of creating all this unique Mm -hmm. content for so many channels at once. So you start to make sure that your marketing efforts are not spread too thin from the early days. Um, So in terms of things like Twitter, you know, having a larger following there and obviously seeing sort of the stuff that's gone down on Twitter in the last couple of weeks with the shifts there um, is is for sure a concern based on just the amount of time that I've put in there. Um, But I have used that approach where I spent a lot of time on Twitter since I think maybe January of 2021, really focusing on building an audience there. And I've since transitioned that into other platforms. So doing stuff on LinkedIn, my newsletter, those are kind of the three main areas where I focus my time Mm. in terms of a marketing perspective and really driving folks from Twitter to those other platforms. Now that I have sort of that audience built up, I've got that content as a backlog and I can really repurpose that without taking up too much time. Just on the Twitter sort of audience building side, like what, what sort of things did you do in 2021 to get your audience growth going up? Yeah, really focus on a lot of things that are super saturated now, unfortunately. So things like threads were were not really that popular at that time. So I started in 2021 with, I think, maybe 300 followers in January. Um, and I just noticed that there was maybe like one or two people doing threads consistently, like on a weekly basis. And seeing those gets, you know, thousands, thousands of likes versus normal tweets were getting maybe just a couple hundred if you were doing really well. Um, and I just thought, hey, I have all this stuff that I've done for the past five, six, seven, eight years. Why don't I just put some of this into tweets, into threads, see what happens. And from there, it really took off. Um, So I think I did have a a really good, you know, timing, essentially. I was very lucky in the sense that 
Uh, I did this at the right time before it became the thing to do. Uh, now I'd say using just that strategy of posting threads is definitely a little more difficult. There's so many people doing it. Every other tweet is a long form thread. All these people, you know, everyone on the platform is is sick of threads for the most part. So that strategy is sort of played out. It's like that law of shitty click throughs, right? Where you do stuff over time, as more people do it, it starts to become less effective. Um, so in terms of, you know, the things I did, they may not work now, but I really did focus on just providing as much value as I could in legitimate threads that people found interesting. That's amazing. So you went from 300 to almost 100,000 in about a year and a, and a bit, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty fast growth. And I, I've definitely slacked off on Twitter in, in probably the last, you know, six plus months or so. Um, just haven't had as much time to put into it. And obviously things getting more saturated, but it still continues to grow. And I think that's yeah. this, the compounding kicking in. And just, just from that, I know listeners will be keen to hear, but um, did you also engage with other people's content or was it mainly your own posts that were driving all those followers? Yeah, so I would, at least in the early days, I really f- uh, focused on building up my own little network there of maybe 5, 10, 15 folks that were kind of, you know, having similar goals as me. They were mm-hmm. marketers in the space. They wanted to build a following. They wanted to share a lot of the cool things they were doing. So having a little bit of a support network is really key in the early days. People that can engage with your stuff, they can, you know, give you feedback on a thread draft or an idea, tell you what direction to go, if this hook is good, if it's not I think having that sounding board for ideas is really key, especially in the early days of Twitter. If you're trying to get off the ground, you really do need that initial engagement and feedback to really refine Mm -hmm. what's my voice, what are my topics that I want to focus on that are core to what I do, and what's the end goal there in mind. So I think really focus on the early days of find like-minded people in your space, maybe round up a few of them, start a direct Mm -hmm. message group, start to chat through ideas of what's working, what's not working, and build that kind of you know, little masterclass or mastermind, essentially, of people that that have a similar goal to you. Mm, cool. Um, so you obviously rode the wave of Twitter threads. Uh, what sort of what, what new marketing trends are you seeing now that you're pretty excited about? Yeah, so there's a few. I think video is, is probably one of the most exciting things um, in terms of just marketing trends as a whole. Obviously, anything short form has become really popular in the past, but I also still see a lot of longer form video being consumed on different platforms, especially as it relates to SEO. So we've been testing this a lot with you know, our, our hundreds of clients over the past couple of years of implementing video in addition to a lot of the obviously written content that comes with uh, an SEO-driven focus. So that's both adding video to existing content pieces, but also taking an approach where we're trying to get that video content to rank on YouTube. We're trying to get that video content to rank in search results, depending on the given search. There's sometimes video shown as well. So you can capture multiple, essentially, search spots on Google by just diversifying your content format. So it's really one area that we've seen obviously just become more popular over time and is one that's really interesting. So just on the video side there, are you saying that if you embed a video in a blog post, it'll help with your rankings? Or Yeah, so it really can help with a couple different things. So things like time on page, reducing the bounce rates, getting people to essentially just spend more time actually consuming your content. It gives you really those different mediums of learning for different learning styles. So what we've found is that if you just exclusively publish long-form content, in some spaces that can work. In some spaces, people get really annoyed. They maybe just want the answer quickly. Maybe they want to watch Mm -hmm. a video that's like a minute, two minutes long to really capture the essence of it. So if you provide multiple mediums there, you're really covering a lot of those bases where, you know, let's say you're in a space and 50% of the people, they like to read a lot. So they, they don't skim as much. They're going to consume a maybe 2000 word piece and enjoy it. Maybe 50% mm-hmm. of those people though are going to look at that. They're going to say, okay, I'm not reading 2000 words on the subject. I'm just going to click out and go to YouTube. 
So if you include another, you know, medium of content, so to speak, whether it's even audio, video, visuals, et cetera, you see a lot of reduction in sort of bounce rates, increases in time on page. You see people go to multiple pages from there and gain more interest in your content as a whole. And are there any benefits in embedding a self-hosted video versus embedding a YouTube video, for example? Um, I, you know, the self ones, you can get a little bit more analytics data on. If you use something like Wistia, they have some really good mm-hmm. analytics that you can tap into. Um, the problem there is that you obviously don't capture some of the potential YouTube rankings. So you're, you know, with that, you're not killing two birds with one stone, so to speak. So we tend to prefer things on YouTube if you're going for that traffic driven approach. If it's more of a video that's like for a landing page or it's conversion driven, I'd for sure keep that on like Wistia or another platform where you get a little bit deeper analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're doing that on YouTube, you tend to get that dual benefit of, of, you know, it's included in the piece, obviously embedded, but then you're also, you know, grabbing some rankings from YouTube as a whole. Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously you touched on videos in general, but uh, we had a question from Twitter earlier today. They were asking like, how, how can SEO and short form video work together? So things like, like TikTok, even videos on Twitter, for example, how can they support SEO? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is it'll depend on what space you're in. So we've tested a few things with TikTok and like B2B SaaS spaces, and it's just not that effective overall for us in terms of, you know, marketing from an agency standpoint. I think it can have some effect from just obviously a branding standpoint. It's just whether or not that's worth the investment versus investing that similar amount of time or money into sort of other channels. So when we're talking about, you know, high level decision making of larger contracts for something like enterprise B2B, We haven't found any data from our own testing, from any other testing that indicates that there are really big decision makers from companies that at least we want to engage with that are on TikTok. Um, But I think it depends on the space you're in, right? If it's something that's more consumer driven, you're marketing directly to consumers, you're selling a lower priced item. I think there's so much data there that's proven that TikTok is a really big force in driving buying decisions. So I think it'll just come down to what industry are you in? What kind of customers do you deal with on a normal basis? And uh, sort of what do you want to do from there? I think it can be an interesting play from an SEO perspective if you're doing some personal brand stuff. So I've seen if you search, you know, for, you know, maybe more people that I'd refer to as influencers as a whole, like maybe it's Gary Vee, whoever it is. If you search for their name, you'll typically see things on TikTok show up. Um, In terms of TikTok as like a search engine in itself, it's definitely growing a little bit as well. I think they have a long way to go, but there are some statistics that show like younger generations are using things like TikTok for consumer-based searches. Mm. Uh, but for us, we've kind of stayed away just because we haven't found any anything that proves it's very good for like a B2B SaaS standpoint. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so in this show, we like to reflect on things that are less repeatable, things that are unscalable, uh, that propel our businesses forward. Um, so I know you ran a, seven, a, mid, a mid-seven-figure agency with a large team. But can you share a tactic uh, maybe that you used in the beginning, or maybe you're still using now today, that wasn't necessarily scalable, but helped, has helped to grow your agency? Um, obviously, the, the case studies was one thing, but what else would you say that you're doing today that's helping to kind of grow you in an unscalable way? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good question. I, I think one of the biggest things for us has been doing really unique and subject matter expert content. So this stuff is not traditionally scalable because obviously you need someone that's actually done it. You need someone that can refer to the specific language that folks are are looking for, right? So our market here is really focused on high-level B2B SaaS marketers. That's usually who we're working with on a daily basis in the projects that we do. So we're working with folks that are either VPs of marketing, CMOs, 
heads or directors of SEO strategy, things like that. So really high level folks that have spent at least five to six years in their given and respective fields. So the people that we're speaking with, the people that are making decisions to work with us on, um, they really know the ins and outs of the space. And it's not something you can really half-ass in terms of um, putting out surface level generic content and expecting them to be ready to convert and spend, you know, large contracts on with you, right? So the biggest unscalable approach there for us is, is really doing unique content that isn't scalable, that we can't use AI for, we can't use junior level writers for. It's stuff that myself, my co-founder, other sort of high-level senior folks on our team whose time is worth a lot, we spend doing that quite a bit because we know the value of, of being able to put out genuinely helpful content saying, we've worked with you know 300 SaaS companies in the past couple of years. Here's all the things we tested. Here's what's working. Here's what's not working. That gives people real insights and data that are only you know garnered from hard-fought lessons. Mm. I think that's the real key with a lot of content creation and something that you, know, you can't just outsource, you can't just scale it. It's going to be a time investment from your end, but it can pay off big because you are really sharing information that is not super saturated out there. Like a lot of the content you'll see from an SEO standpoint is pretty saturated. It's sort of surface level, mm-hmm. um, but decision makers are not just searching, you know, best SEO firm and then spending a quarter of a million dollars on that, right? They're, yeah. they're going to their network. They're saying, who do you know? What content have they created? Where can I read about what they're doing? You know, what insights do they have to share? And then they make a decision from that. Yeah. Um, I know you touched on AI a couple of times um, in the conversation. So we know AI is, is getting bigger. We know it's kind of becoming more mainstream. Uh, how, how much do you use AI in your content production? And kind of where do you see things going in terms of, of where AI is headed? Yeah, we use AI for a few different things. Uh, we just don't use it for its like main uh, use case that it's marketed as now. I think a lot of folks are seeing AI marketed towards like, we'll write your blog post in 30 seconds and it'll be perfect. And we don't see that as just being the case whatsoever. Maybe if you're doing really surface level content, you can generate a good deal of it with AI, go mm-hmm. in, tweak some things, add real expertise in there. But if we're talking about really unique subject matter content, uh, AI is just really good for pulling in sort of structure on that content as a whole. So that's mainly where we see a use cases, creating things like outlines, content briefs, giving a generalized direction of like, here's the content out there right now that's ranking well. What sort of subject matter areas are they touching on? What's included within that piece? Pulling in that information is a huge time saver versus like actually running through all those pieces as a whole. And that's where we see AI as being the most useful is that it can aggregate a lot of things that are out there. It can sort of spin those into new ideas and angles that then you can go in and do the manual hard work of implementing and actually adding your subject matter expertise. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Um, just before we end off, uh, just um, last question for you, but yeah, I, I guess in SaaS and B2B SaaS, we've seen a sort of downturn with the recession, people cutting back marketing spend. How is that affecting sort of agencies like yourself? You know, are you seeing a downturn from your side? Are, are these big enterprises still investing in marketing? And what do you advise to other businesses in terms of how they should spend their marketing budget now? Yeah, absolutely. So we're actually seeing a vast increase in the amount that folks are spending with us. Uh, we'll typically see in recessions like this, smaller companies that have less of a foothold in their industry, maybe they haven't raised a large Series A, maybe they're kind of on a seed round. These are typically clients that will drop off first as they're they're obviously more budget conscious. Mm-hmm. They're trying to cut back spending. They're trying to be less aggressive as a whole, be a little more conservative. We tend to work with folks that have at least a, a large Series A round and, and well-funded. Um, and so we typically find that in this case, 
Usually, unfortunately, obviously, folks internally tend to get laid off. Um, but that means they actually might need more work in terms of catching up all these things that folks were doing internally. And so we usually see contracts increase in size. Um, so we see folks kind of doubling down on some of their marketing. I think the real key is is understanding who you're working with and picking really sophisticated uh, kind of clients and partners as a whole who understand that like marketing as a whole is not a light switch that you turn on and off where you say, okay, today we have to cut spend and you know, this is not going to have any repercussions, right? But if you cut your marketing spend, you you might be fine for a couple months, but you'll realize that in maybe three, six months, those leads, your pipeline, things start to dry up really quickly. And then you realize that you've, you know, you've now lost that that time investment as a whole. But then when you go to turn things back on, when you re-engage, there's another three to six month lag of that actually yeah. generating more results for you. So, you know, it's really a lot of education as a whole around clients. What are they spending on? Really just getting to know their business as a whole and understanding where can they afford now to invest based on the return on investment. So I think mm. tying everything you're doing back to data as much as possible is really key. Um, it's not always the best from like a marketing results standpoint to have everything be, you know, it must be tied to data. There's a lot to be said around like uh, kind of up in the air, things like brand marketing, where it's, you know, mm. almost impossible to tie some of that back to a specific conversion figure. But I think if you can get as close as you can to proving that a lot of the stuff you're doing is actually resulting in benefits and gains in their marketing strategy, uh, you should be pretty set as a whole. So that's kind of where we're seeing things land at the moment yeah. and, and hopefully continuing on that trend. Yeah, I mean, I mean, from the SaaS side, I saw an article yesterday, I think it was, where they were suggesting that because there'll be less competition now, you know, everyone, everyone's cutting back their marketing spend, the cost will be reduced. So if you have the runway, it's, it's good to spend on marketing now to be ahead of your competitors when things come back to normal. So yeah, I think, I think definitely trying to spend on marketing is, is a great, great piece of advice now if, if you have the runway and you can't afford it. Uh, yeah, because when things, once things come back, it should be better. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, completely. No, it's, it's a super unique time too, because as you mentioned, if, if folks in your space are cutting back, that's sort of like a once in a decade opportunity as a startup to, to capitalize and, and essentially gain market share, right? So let's say your largest competitor in SEO, they've just cut back. They've said, we're cutting all budgets for the next six months. If you double down in there, you're capturing some serious ground in the mm -hmm. market that otherwise is probably just unattainable unless you had raised even more money and just had more fuel to put on the fire. So I think it's a really unique time where if your runway calls for it, if you have a good setup, if other folks in your space are cutting back and you're doubling down, you're probably going to see some really massive results at the end of it. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Jeremy. Uh, before we go, um, as I mentioned before, we have a mix of entrepreneurs, founders and marketers, as well as agencies listening. Uh, where's the best place for them to find you online if they want to reach out to you or uh, get in touch to use your services? How can they reach out? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is jmoser with two R's at the end. Um, and then you can find us at usurp.io. So that's U-S-E-R-P.io. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks for having me.